0: 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible and so I'm told by some this should be the shortest message in the series so let's close in prayer and we'll beat the Baptist of Lubies. no I'm kidding let's look at Third John together some of you were excited about that remember going to the doctor several years ago. It's like a sore throat or something to do with my neck. It was hurting. And when I went in there and he began to kind of push and, you know, say, well, does this hurt? I said, no, no. He pushed a little different place. Does this hurt? Well, you know, no is the answer. But it hurt because he was pushing, not because, you know, I was hurting there. Then he finds another spot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Boy, that's sore. He says, okay, all right, now I know what's wrong. When you go to the doctor and he begins to kind of push and poke on you like that, the purpose of it is to find out where you're hurting. And when he finds out what's where you're hurting, he can find out what's wrong and what he needs to do to be able to help you. When we come to 3 John, we kind of feel like we're going to see Dr. John because he comes to us and begins to poke in areas that are very sensitive. And as he begins to poke in your life and in your heart, you may feel one of a couple of things. One, you might feel that the pain is because uh, the doctor is pushing too hard, you know, like maybe I'm pushing too hard, but or it could be that you feel pain because there's an area that needs healing, an area that this text is going to push on in your heart that needs the touch of the Holy Spirit in order to be different and that area is an area that we all have and that's essentially the struggle between being a taker and being a giver well let's walk down through this whole book uh... just fourteen verses beginning right in verse one through verse four john says the elder to the beloved gaius whom i love in truth beloved i pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers For I was very glad when the brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you were walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. John is writing to his friend, his brother in Christ, Gaius. And after a few opening remarks, he makes a statement that anybody who has had a godly influence in the life of somebody else can make. And that is that I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Uh, I've got two daughters, and almost every night at our home, we will sit, sometimes long, sometimes short, and we'll read the Bible together, and we will pray. Kathy, my wife, and our daughters, and we'll just pray about whatever's going on. And it's so neat to hear little girls pray. I guess it's neat to hear little boys pray, but little girls are the best because they have uh, such sweethearts. And uh, it, it just fills me with such delight to hear you know, my daughters talking to God. Those of you who have adult children who are walking with Christ can identify with what John is saying here. Because you know, they're off on their own, they're doing their own thing now, they're in, their, they're in charge of their own lives, and they're walking with Christ, and you have a joy because you know that you've been able to input into their lives, and now they are autonomous with the Lord. Well, John is not talking here about physical children, though certainly that applies, because as parents we want to be discipling our kids. And in fact, those are your first disciples, or your children. But he's talking here not about physical children as much as spiritual. That is, people in, in in whom's lives he has poured... And Gaius is one of them. And he says, you're one of my children, one of my spiritual children. Maybe John led him to Christ, or maybe John's just simply taught him the things about Christ. But for whatever reason, John says, to hear that you are walking in the truth, to hear that you are faithful, there's no, it gives me no greater joy. You know, the opposite is also true, that there is hardly a greater pain to find out that somebody that you've poured your life into has just gone down the tubes. You know, there's a couple of guys that I've spent time with and uh, discipled and uh, they just, uh, you know, it's so disappointing to see. You know, one of them just, I don't even want to get into the details, but it's, it's, it's just so, so disheartening if you're pouring your life into somebody almost kind of like a Judas was for Jesus. And yet at the other end of it, there's no greater joy. To, to spend time discipling, spending time with somebody, sharing them, teaching them about the Lord, and just sh- talking about life as Christians. And then to, for whatever reason, God separates that relationship, and now they're off by themselves and kind of responsible to reproduce that in the lives of other people. And then when you see them actually doing that, that's exciting. I've got a good friend up in the Northwest. I was in college down here in Denton. I spent some time with him. A couple of years, we became real good friends. I began to disciple him. And he's up in the Northwest, married, uh, got a kid. It's just fantastic. When he comes down, we're able to talk about all the ways that he is involved in ministry and is faithful. So you've got these two ends of the spectrum. And so John has certainly heard about folks that have gone down the tubes. But to see Gaius, somebody walking in the truth, he says, I've got no greater joy than to see that you're doing well. Well now John begins in verse 5 to really get to what you might call the heart or the the real meat of this letter. Look at what he says, verse 5, Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they're strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles therefore we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. He says you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren especially when they're strangers. The strangers he's talking about here are not just total strangers but are people who are Christians, people who are ministers and who would travel around, kind of like David said, they would travel around itinerant ministers and would go from church to church and teach about the Lord. Now, in our context, we've pretty much got the same old guy up there every week, you know, teaching. Occasionally, pleasantly, we'll have somebody else. But in their context, it was very often you'd have different people coming in. You'd have a traveling minister come in, and if he came with good recommendations, as we'll see a couple of other guys do, Uh, then you would let them teach, and they would share with you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And and you'd give them a place to stay, you'd give them food, and as you sent them off, you make preparations for where they're going, and you'd send with them provisions, perhaps money, perhaps food, something to help them on their journey. And he says, you're doing a good job when you do this for the brethren. And uh, he says that they go out for the sake of the name. Verse 7 accepting nothing from the Gentiles. In other, in other words, they're teaching the true gospel of grace. It's not that they go out to the unbelievers and they tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, You know that, that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, but they accept nothing from the Gentiles, meaning that they don't give that good news that you can have heaven as a free gift and then pass the offering plate. Instead, they don't want to muddy the water. They don't take anything from unbelievers, but it's the obligation of those who have placed their faith in Christ to support such folks like this. For one reason, that's why we don't pass the plate, as you know, here in this service, because we don't want to feel like you're under compulsion to do that. If you do it, it's because you choose to to take part. And these itinerant ministers, John says, uh, they go out and they're faithful, and when you support them, you are participating with them in the work. Verse 8, he says, you do this, support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. When you support the folks that we send out to Russia, you are participating in everything that happens in Russia. When somebody comes to Jesus Christ in Russia, it is in part because of the support that you've given to enable somebody to go and to teach that good news. When we supported Susan Fuscher, when she went down to Mexico, she came back and kind of told us about things that were going on. We participated in that. When you support Dehati and Plumline Ministries and the great work that they're doing with the African Americans on our campus, you're going to be participating in the good work that they're doing. This is exactly what John is saying. We ought to support such men. Why? That we may be fellow workers with the truth right alongside them. I'd like to read a letter that a friend of mine recently wrote to the makers of Jaguar automobiles. Listen, on December, this is what it says, quote, on December 13th, approximately 1115, I heard a radio program in Dallas that began with the female who said, quote, it is more blessed to give than receive. She then went on to make the comment that whoever said that must have been on the receiving end. The writer goes on to say, Obviously, this was intended to be a mild joke, but I was surprised for two reasons. First, that a company such as yours that promotes its products to the refined and educated could be so ignorant as to the source of the above quote. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul is quoting Jesus when he said, It is better to give than to receive. And also, I was more than a bit put out by the comment that, quote, whoever said that must have been on the receiving end. Even an impartial reading of the life of Christ as is presented in the Gospels would hardly lead one to the conclusion that Christ was a receiver. In your ignorance you not only fail to identify the source of a very familiar quote, but you disparage the speaker of the quote in the process. I hope that if the refined image that is presented by Jaguar is genuine and not the product of some marketing identity. You will pull the advertisement and replace it with one that is not as insulting to the intelligence of your intended audience nor embarrassing to your corporation. You've worked diligently to build a reputation for refinement but alas, that image has taken a serious blow. Respectfully, Brian Collins, Denton, Texas. (laughs) Is it better to give than to receive, or as Jaguar says, is that only true when you're receiving? Once, when I was teaching my little my youngest daughter about giving, she had gotten some money from, I don't know, birthday or something, and there was like 12 bucks there on the table. There was a, I remember there was a 10, and there was a couple of other dollars there. And I was trying to teach her, when, when the Lord gives us a portion of money, we give a portion back. And she says, well, how much should I give? And I said, honey, you need to give whatever you... Feel that you can give joyfully. And she grabs the 10. She says, Well, how about this? And I said, Well, I said, That may be a little much because I'm thinking percentages here in my mind. And that's a lot, you know. Uh, but then as I began to look back on it, I thought, Why did I tell her that? I told her that because I thought, you know, she's young, she doesn't know the value of money. And so she wants to give away the 10. She does not know that 10's worth 10 times what that dollar's worth. And then I began to think, well maybe she has a better understanding of the value of money than I do. I shared that with Brian and he said that he had a similar incident with his daughter, who said that she wanted to give, you know, something to somebody uh, very generous, and Brian said that he thought of his daughter, well it's so easy you know for you to be generous when you've got me to take care of your needs and then he thought wait a minute that's true of me too (laughs) because my Heavenly Father has promised to do the same thing and here today is where our text begins to poke where Dr. John begins to cause us to hurt because he's poking in an area that is that that hurts us in the selfish part of our heart, and that is that the Lord expects each believer to apply the heart of a giver. Now I want to tell you it's tempting when you think of giving to assume that we're just talking about money. We're not. We're talking about the heart because as this text goes on to talk about um, this guy named Diotrephes, it's not a money issue. It's an issue of a selfish heart. A selfish heart is going to spill over into money, it's going to spill over into time, it's going to spill over into everything. So we're not talking, when I say giving, I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about sacrifice of your life. Are you a selfish person, are you a taker, or are you a giver in life? Eugene Peterson has a book called Run with the Horses, and in it he talks about how he saw a family of birds on a dead branch out over a lake the branch was like 4 feet over the water and there was a nest there and how this the adult bird was pushing the other birds out to get them to learn to fly and this is what he wrote in this book he said one adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started shoving them toward the end of the branch pushing 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 uh, the end one fell off and somewhere between the branch and the water 4 feet below the wings started working and the fledgling was off on his own then the second one. The third one was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment his grip on the branch loosened just enough to where he swung downward (laughs) and then tightened again, bulldog tenacious. The parent was without sentiment. He pecked at the desperate clinging talons until it was more painful for the poor little chick to hang on than to risk the insecurities of flying. The grip was released and the inexperienced wings began pumping The mature swallow knew that what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. Birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best. He goes on to say, giving is what we do best. It's the air into which we were born. Some of us desperately try to hold on to ourselves, to live for ourselves. We look so bedraggled and pathetic doing it, hanging on to a dead branch for dear life, afraid to uh, to risk ourselves on the untried wings of giving. We don't think we can give generously because we've never tried. But the sooner we start, the better, for we're going to have to give up our lives finally. And the longer we wait, the less time we have for the soaring and swooping life of grace. Well, as if Dr. John hasn't gotten personal enough, he gets now from looking at the from the positive side of Gaius. Now he looks at the negative side at a guy named Diotrephes. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. John wrote a letter to the church, but unfortunately this guy named Diotrephes checks the mail. Diotrephes got the letter, saw it was from the Apostle John, threw it into the trash with the Kroger coupons. Diotrephes has a problem because he wants to be first as John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrophes, who loves to be first, does not accept what we say. So in order to communicate with the church, John's got to write to Gaius, because Diotrephes won't let the message get through. John says, when I come, I'll call attention to his deeds. There's a principle here that we can glean, and that is that the Lord will rebuke the one whose heart is bent on self-interest. James wrote that God humbles the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so in order to encourage us to be humble, I'd like to look for a second at these two verses, 9 and 10, and for us to glean some principles from Diotrephes' character. Bad example, so some good principles they're not in your message notes but they are on the screen so if you want to jot them down you're sure welcome to do that there's five of them all from these two verses the first is this watch your desire to be ranked as first be careful of that our culture says the first is the best you know the biggest the greatest the most talented the best-looking the best bank account, the best car, the best jewelry, whatever you wear that's the best, nothing else is acceptable. And our culture says you've got to be ranked number one. You've got to be ranked first. John says of Diotrephes, he is the one who loves to be first among them. It's the classic case of a fear of God, fear of men versus the fear of God. Who do you fear? What's the motivation in your life? Is it to please men? Or is it to please God? Are there giants in the land? Or like Joshua and Caleb, let's go get them. Do you fear men or do you fear God? Watch your desire to be ranked first. Don't be so insecure that you're threatened by somebody else's success. Several times the Lord Jesus had to take his disciples aside because the disciples got caught up into this mentality. He knew that Jesus was offering the kingdom to Israel, and so they figured they're going to have the top seats in the kingdom. And they began to argue among themselves which one of them is the greatest. Remember that? Several times throughout the Gospels. wonder which one's the greatest. Of course, they never did this in front of Jesus. And Jesus... Pulls them aside and says, guys, you don't act like that. The unbelievers care about these things. You want to be great? You be a servant. Watch your desire to be ranked as first. Secondly, submit to the authority that God places over you. Submit to the authority God places over you. It's an inescapable fact that God places humans over humans for authority to act in his stead. We see it in the government, Romans 13. You see it very clearly. Uh, You see it in the home, Ephesians 5, very clearly. Uh, You see it in the church. Uh, You see it in the workplace. Uh, We are all under the authority, and we submit to the Lord the authority that he's placed over us. But Diotrephes, John says, that he does not receive us. Diotrephes was not willing to be under the authority of the apostles like everybody else were. Diotrephes says, nope, and that's nothing but pride. Another important part of submission to authority is when God places you in authority to take it in a responsible way. Diotrephes didn't do that. What did he do? He forbid those who desired to help, and he put them out of the church on his own. He says, okay, you're out on his own. When the Lord Jesus taught very clearly in Matthew 18 that there is a three-step process before you put anybody else out of the church, and all along the way, the whole purpose of that is restoration, not excommunication. Submit to the authority God places over you. Third, stay teachable. Stay teachable. Boy, how much we need to hear that. We've been Christians for some time, and you think all of a sudden we know it all. Stay teachable. Um, Watch for the arrogance of thinking that you know it all. What we're told here of Diotrephes, neither does he himself receive the brothers. He wouldn't welcome these traveling ministers in. Maybe he felt like it was his turf, and the congregation didn't need to hear anything from anybody else, just him. Stay teachable. Fourth, don't criticize another to elevate yourself. We're told of Diotrephes that he unjustly accusing us with wicked words. For some reason, Diotrephes felt like he had to put down other people, put down the apostles. I mean, talk about Gaul. to put down the apostles of Christ to make himself look better. Again, this all comes back to the fact that he loves to be first among them. And so he unjustly accuses them. Not only that, he uses wicked words to do it. Malicious talk. If somebody needs to be criticized, we're to speak the truth in love, we're told. Not to use evil words. Diotrephes criticize somebody else in order to make him look better. And this is tempting, isn't it? You know, when we're jealous of somebody, somebody else has a lot of success or something in an area particularly that we're trying to succeed in. And we see somebody else that's doing a great job, and then we have people say, boy, they're doing a great job. The temptation is to say, yeah, but you know what, I know all about them. Here's what they do, really. And as a result, you put them down, and as you put them down, it puts you up. Don't criticize another to elevate yourself. And finally, fifth, encourage generosity toward others, not just toward yourself. See, Diotrephes has no problem, undoubtedly, if somebody wants to say, uh, oh, well, let's support Diotrephes. But now when these traveling ministers come in and it threatens Diotrephes' turf because he likes to be first, he says, no, we're not going to support them. Because what does it say? Neither does he himself receive the brethren, he doesn't have any support for them. But if anybody wants to support them, he kicks them out. Encourage generosity toward others. We have no problem encouraging generosity toward ourselves. Encourage it toward others as well. You know, it's one part of selfishness as a believer in Jesus Christ to not be in the ministry. I mean, that's that's unacceptable in, in the life of a Christian. If you replace your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the obligation to be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. There are no excuses for that. But, you know something that's almost as bad is to be involved in the ministry, and yet you're building the kingdom of you, as opposed to building the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Diotrephes was doing. His prayers, his service, his acts of good works were all selective, so that the good things that he did all came back to his benefit. And if doing something good is not going to come back and reflect good on him, then it's out. I hope that you're, that you're able to not just say, oh yeah, boy, go get them, John. Get Diotrephes. You know, that sorry guy. But are you also able to allow this text to reflect you like a mirror? To hold it up to your heart and see what it shows. Because we all have a bit of diatrophies in us. We all have a bit of envy at the success of somebody else. We all have a heart that in in our flesh we are steeped in selfishness. We are steeped in being takers and not givers. So John goes on in verse 11 to give a direct command to Gaius and by principle to you and me. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our witness is true. Verse 13, I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends by name. You know, it's so easy just to kind of run off those last couple of verses, but I have found it so true. Those of you who have email or those of you who've got correspondence through writing, if you've got something serious to say, say it face to face. You don't want to just talk through a letter. If you've got the opportunity to talk to somebody, talk to somebody. Don't just do email. Don't just do a letter. Face to face is certainly the preferable way. I once read a story about a bicycle race in India. It reminded me of the bicycle rodeos that I had when I was in elementary school in San Antonio. Uh, Do we still have bicycle rodeos in elementary school? Anybody know? Anybody have kids in elementary school? You know what a bicycle rodeo is, where you bring your bike to school and you all, you know, do these events together, you know, weaving out through cones and you race and all kinds of stuff to see who's going to win. Well, the bicycle rodeo, one of the things that they had was they had a, a line where you'd all line up on it and then you had another line some distance down. And the goal was to try to not go fast, to try to go as slowly as you could and you would just see how well you would balance. Well, I immediately thought of the bicycle rodeo. And of course, all these kids blew it, you know, you put your foot down. As soon as you put your foot down, they'd add like 10 seconds to your time. Well, there was a race in India that that it was wonderful to hear that it was exactly the same way because the object of this race is to be last, not first. So when the gun goes off, everybody freezes and tries to balance and you would only inch forward just as you're about to fall over and the one who made it across the finish line first actually was the loser and the one who was in the back of the line actually was the winner now imagine getting into a race like this without knowing the rules Okay, you hear the gun and you take off boom you shoot down the the course I mean you're just smoking everybody and then you break the tape you're there and everybody's just kinda looking at you and you expect Everybody's going to be going like this, and they're looking at you like, you missed it, bud. Everybody else is back there doing their best to be still. That's a lot what we're like in the race of life, because our culture says, go for it, be first. And we break the tape, and we stand before God, and we expect to hear all this applause, and he's looking at you going, what's up with that? Because Jesus said, the first will be last. The greatest among you will be a servant. It's not all about getting. It's about giving. Having the heart of a giver. It's not about winning. It's not about being first, but it's about being a servant. So when you think about 3 John... You want to think about, am I a giver or am I a taker? Am I like Gaius, am I like Demetrius, or am I like this guy, Diotrephes, who has to be first? I think, by the grace of God, that we can all move forward very slowly and be servants. Let's pray together. Father, we just love you today and thank you for the Bible, that it teaches us truth, that we don't have to wander in this dark world wondering which way is up. But though our culture races to be first, you tell us to race to be last, to race to be a servant, that the greatest among us is to be the least. I thank you, Lord, that we can have such a confidence in who we are in Jesus Christ, that serving reflects no dishonor to us but instead reflects honor to the one who gave his life on the cross for our sins. We thank you for this text as it shows us two polar opposite Christians. The Diotrephes who cares nothing but for himself and even the good that he does is all reflected back on improving and impressing people. And Lord, we think of Gaius and And Demetrius, these dear brothers who give of themselves and so are commended by the Apostle John and commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to imitate what is good and not what is evil. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Lord bless you.